Welcome to the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross. Today, we'll be discussing how Indigenous people engage with their governments in the context of their tumultuous pasts. And we're sitting down with Roma Chitko, a third-year Global Development Studies major. Hi, Roma. How are you doing? Hi, Emma. I'm doing great. That's great. So you have a really interesting topic today, and we're later going to get into some very interesting Um, interview and personal story audio, but first I was wondering if you could introduce to us maybe an example of a major problem that uh, Indigenous peoples face and how they push back against it. Yeah, so I started my research with a case study from Aboriginal Australia of the Stolen Generations. Uh, This refers to a group of children between 1910 and 1970 who were forcibly removed from their homes as a part of the Australian government's policies of assimilation. These children were put either into adoptive families or state-run institutions. Their names were changed and they were forbidden from speaking their native Aboriginal languages. There's an interview from a woman named Ruth who is one of the survivors of this generation. Once you were taken from your parent, you had no more connection with them. No more. Absolutely nothing. We were removed. Removed from our families. But we sat in the same dining hall, big dining hall, children one side and the grown-ups the other side. And I said to Mum, You never sat with your face towards me at the dining room. She said, I couldn't. I could not look at you. Now, you got your mother, you know, and he's a four and a half kid taken from her. Four and a half kid is looking for attention. She never looked around. She said, because we weren't allowed to utter a sound at the table. Never a sound, not even to put a spoon down. We had to slide those seats back so quietly. I was always stood in the middle of the dining hall until everybody finished eating. I had to stand there. I couldn't lift, you know, stand on one leg or... I just had to stand there. And my mother said, Ruthie, I just knew you got into so much trouble. Well, I, I guessed it was because I was trying to get her attention. And yet I was punished for that. And uh, when I was five, then they sent her away. As they did to most of the mothers, they sent them out to work. So they didn't give anybody a chance to lead another life. I mean, there were people who knew that it was wrong, but They just kept us there. So I was there till I was 14. These assimilation policies were an effort to kind of force indigenous culture to die out because it was seen as inferior to the culture of 
white settlers. So one of the ways that this was done was by taking very young children, as seen in the interview, and having them reject their indigenous names and languages, um, which essentially taught them to reject their indigenous heritage. And these policies have a legacy that extends to these people and their children today. So it's obviously a tragedy that their identities were getting ripped away in this fashion. And you're kind of taking us here to zoom more into Australia specifically. So, I mean, in your research, I'm sure you've come upon many examples in Australia of why these stolen generations of children who grew up without their heritage matter specifically in the modern context. Yeah, so many of the children who were taken were psychologically, physically, and sexually abused by living while they were living in the state system or with their adoptive families. In addition, specifically in the state institutions, living conditions were extremely harsh and children received minimal care and affection, which based on studies done now, we know has lifelong implications for these children as they grow up and future relationships that they form. Like just between 1910 and 1970, these children were taught that their parents had either died or abandoned them And so they were never allowed to know who their biological families were. And now that there's more of a push in the 21st century to connect with um, indigenous heritage, these families, these children who were taken during that time period now have no way to pass on their culture to their children. So kind of, although this only happened for this portion of time over the course of 60 years, it's affected multiple generations into the future because it disrupted these cultural ties that indigenous families had to each other. This practice of taking children from their indigenous families actually did not only happen in Australia, it also happened here with Native American families. Specifically, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dusty, who is a tribal activist up on a reservation that kind of spans the border between North and South Dakota. Um, So I'll let her introduce herself. Uh, My name is Dusty Nagel. My Dakota name is Paints Red Around Her. I'm from the Lake Traverse Reservation of South Dakota of the Sistan Watanoyape, which is one of the one of the Dakota tribes. I'm the executive director of Nishto Incorporated. It's a native nonprofit um, located on the reservation. Nishto is a Dakota word that means concern for others outside of yourself. We are trying to address the, the different issues that have fallen in the cracks um, in all of the different governmental partnerships and relationships with the tribe, the state, and the federal government. And Dusty is actually a descendant of a woman who was taken from her family and forced to live in a church-run orphanage just outside the reservation. So Dusty was willing to share her grandmother's story with me and what that story means to her and other people living on the reservation today who are also descendants of children who were taken. My grandmother, she lived up about 
five miles west of town here. Yeah, seven miles west of the orphanage or so. She lived up there in a in a tent with her grand her grandparents. And they came one day. They they would just come and they would take you. And you could fight them, you could say no. You either got killed or you got arrested. And there was no one to say, oh, this is not a good thing. You know, the action the government actually encouraged it. Um kill the Indians, save the man era. And they took her and uh she said she waited until it was dark. So she was four. She waited until it was dark and then she ran away. And she ran all the way home. And she said they came for her the next day. And they took her again. She, she, she did the same thing. She kept running. They took her to the Kapu's house. But she said after the fourth time, they never came back to her again. And that family is one of the families on the reservation that's very strong in our culture. So when everything was outlawed and you got imprisoned or killed for being native and practicing your culture, they were one of the family, one of the few families on the reservation who kept it going. Like anytime I've come across something hard in life and I feel whatever, you know, um, I always think of that four, that, that little girl, four years old running through the dark home. And I think I come from that. I come from that. This is nothing that I'm going through right now because I come, you know, and it's always a sense of, it's a root of strength that a lot of us have. And that's what a lot of the, the families on the reservation have that, that got to escape that, you know, the orphanage stuff. So while you were talking about um, the stolen generations and the children that were growing up maybe without concrete knowledge of their history and background, it had kind of reminded me of some other pieces of news that I had read about the current government of Australia, both either giving important landmarks back or publicly apologizing for their past. So I was wondering if you had anything to add as far as public statements that Australia has made in connection with the individuals who are growing up today who were wronged years ago? So governments have only recently begun to nominally make amends for their role in the historical abuse of indigenous populations. The Prime Minister of Australia made a formal apology to the stolen generations in 2008. And in 2019, the governor of California made history by formally apologizing to Native Americans, not specifically for the policies that led to children being taken away, but for the quote, war of extermination declared by the state's first governor in 1851. But the question is, which is what I would like to talk about for the rest of the episode is now what? So these apologies represent a symbolic step forward in history, but indigenous people still have to fight for their recognition every day. So this episode is kind of dedicated to making visible the few of the many ways that indigenous groups have found ways to engage their governments and resist the legacies of violence that have disadvantaged them for so many generations. So as a specific example of these people gaining more recognition, I would like you to kind of turn back the clock on land rights and the struggle between colonial settlers versus indigenous peoples and how the evolution of land distribution unfolded. In Australia, a man named Captain Cook 
claimed the continent for the British crown in 1770. When he did this, he declared the land terra nullius, meaning belonging to no one, which obviously we know isn't true because Aboriginal people were living on the continent at the time. Um, but in Australia, all land and property policies since then have been based on the idea that the land didn't belong to anyone and therefore could be distributed among colonists. This is in contrast to the United States where British colonists treated Native American tribes as nations in some cases, um, in part to enlist their support against the French. So Aboriginal Australians have not had any protection when Australia was a colony or under Commonwealth Australian law until the end of the 20th century. That's kind of messed up that Indigenous peoples got more rights in America just because we hated the French more. Um, it really is. Uh, it's, it kind of just goes to show how Indigenous people face such varied struggles across the globe. They're all direct legacies of colonialism, but it's affected different groups in such different ways, and it's honestly been kind of random. That's kind of the basis of policies concerning land rights, both in Australia and the United States. So kind of moving forward, in 1982, a Torres Strait Islander, which is off the coast of the continent of Australia named Koiki Mabo joined with four other plaintiffs to challenge the terra nullius doctrine of Captain Cook in court. After 10 years, in 1992, the High Court of Australia finally concluded that the terra nullius rationale for the settlement of Australia established British claim to the continent against other nations, but not against native claims. So in effect, it recognized that first Australians had been, as their name implies, in Australia first. Um, thus, Aboriginal Australians have the right to reclaim the lands that they had occupied for 50,000 years, which was cemented in the Native Title Act in 1993. So the High Court of Australia basically used this law to make the country confront its history of injustice towards a minority group. But on the flip side of that, Mabo versus Queensland, which was the case, did not recognize Aboriginal sovereignty and thus Aboriginal people remain subject to Australian federal and state law. So these court cases seem like monumental victories for these people. How have we seen these court cases be enacted in real life? In practice, the Native Title Act allows Aboriginal Australians, not just at the group and tribal level, but at the individual level to reclaim land from the state. However, laying claim to country is still an extremely difficult process because it requires detailed documentation of historical connection to or occupation of these lands. And obviously it's very expensive to hire archeologists and lawyers to find and verify these historical claims. So in effect, while the Native Title Act sounds like a super great idea, 
there are a lot of barriers to reclaiming land that aren't addressed by the act. In fact, the stolen generations that we talked about at the beginning of this episode are effectively shut out of this process by these documentation requirements because a lot of times they didn't even know about their indigenous heritage until much, much later and documents have been lost or destroyed over the course of the generations that it took for these children to even get acknowledgement of their indigenous heritage. Yeah, so what you're talking about there, it strongly reminds me of disenfranchisement in the U.S. Um, I mean, drawing a couple parallels, requiring proof um, of ownership previously archaeologically to get your land back, it kind of reminds me of a poll tax or districting because it's kind of sectioning off these privileges to people who have the means to achieve them and in it's not fulfilling its purpose in reality so i mean those are just some a couple parallels that i saw um that i thought was an interesting comparison so actually one of the reasons that this happens is because the native title act of 1993 was never meant to be the sole response to Mabo v. Queenland. It was meant to be accompanied by a land fund and a social justice package, neither of which ever fully materialized. And so things like the land fund would have helped kind of smaller groups with less money to be able to reacquire some of the lands that they have claimed to. So let's continue your um, story and the line of thought that you were going from earlier when we were talking about the uh, lost generation and the promises and legislation to give land back to Native Americans. Do you have a specific example of how um, the land rights and the land cannot really be separated from each other and that they're inherently connected? Yeah, so I think that the Dakota Access Pipeline, which has been, um, which has been a part of current events news in the U.S. for quite a few years now, is a really good example of how Native American rights are fundamentally connected to the land and cannot be separated from the land in the way that a lot of us think about our constitutional rights. For our listeners who don't know, was a planned project that would transport crude oil from North Dakota to a refinery in Illinois. It would have been 1,172 miles long and would carry 470,000 barrels of oil per day. This project was opposed by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe of North Dakota because the pipeline was projected to run directly under the Missouri River, which was the main source of water for this tribe. And despite what supporters said about the pipeline, whenever you have crude oil running under a body of water, there's always a risk of a leak and of a spill. And even the smallest amount of crude oil in a water supply contaminates it from that point all the way downstream. So a concern for the people who lived on this reservation because the pipeline technically didn't run directly through their reservation. So the federal government on a technicality didn't have to consult with tribal leaders when they were planning the construction of this pipeline. But in effect, 
tribal leaders should have been consulted because the pipeline would directly impact the quality of life on their reservation. And tribal leaders argue that the federal government did not engage with the Standing Rock Sioux tribe during the permitting and planning process. So we kind of took a tour through a very fraught history of cooperation and diplomacy and decisions that kind of balance land and rights between existing governments and indigenous peoples who lived there before the governments existed. And we looked at how governments began to acknowledge past wrongdoings and start to work to become better than they were in the past. Um, And we've been seeing some progress, definitely flawed progress, but progress. And as we move along through our story and progress has continued to accumulate, I'm wondering what we can expect to see in the future of these relationships. What can we expect looking forward now? I spent a lot of time talking about the future of relationships between federal governments and indigenous governments, um, because that's kind of the fundamental concern of land rights. The other issues faced by indigenous populations on a day-to-day basis, it kind of becomes more clear that the future is not only engaging with these larger power structures of federal and state governments, but engaging with each other and within, both within and between indigenous populations. So Dusty talked about a global indigenous trading law and her experience with visiting indigenous people in Bolivia. And I thought that that was a really interesting probably my favorite part of that interview because it talked about building transnational indigenous solidarity outside of existing governmental systems. We met with, there's 38 tribes in Bolivia and we met with all of the different leaders from there. And I thought it was so neat because they're so similar to us. Indigenous people are really similar in so many ways that I think I wish we could just have one big cute and I know that's what the UN is for but (laughs) if we could have like a traditional gathering just to visit that'd be cool because there's so many similarities and even how they met is how we meet and um of course they all spoke their own languages so it was translated three times I finally got to English but one thing that you know caught me was one of the one of the older men from one of the tribes was crying, and he said, "They told us you were all dead." United the United States is over there trying to well doing what they have accomplished since they were trying to make treaties with Bolivia to get to their use of their minerals and oil and stuff, um, and they they wanted them to enter into treaties like they did with us back mm-hmm. in the eighteen hundreds. And they told them that we were all dead because we fought them. Oh, my God. That man was crying, you know, he said, they told us you were all dead. And he couldn't believe. And it was like 30 30 natives from the United States and New Zealand. And um, they were just like in shock. And 
um, what they wanted to do was to create trading. They had rubber and they had all these other things that we needed and we had things they needed. Well, let's leave the, the existing system and do our own thing and start trading. So we, as in our own communities, as we returned home, oh, and the other thing when we left, he said, don't forget about us. When you go back home to your families in life, don't forget about us. And they wanted to set up those trading routes. So our little group, the different ones of us, um, we set up an indigenous trading route. So like here, we have dried corn and rice and all that. And then there, like New Zealand, we were doing a lot of trading because they, they ferment their corn, which mm -hmm. I thought was gross, but whatever. But I wanted eel, smoked eel. So we ran into a customs problem because the customs took our corn, but they won't let the eel come across. So with the Northwestern tribes, we do a lot of salmon. Um, I do a lot of trading for corn and stuff from Bolivia. I'm trying to read, we do the hominy here because I love the hominy down there. But little things like that, we're trying to keep going on a small scale. Now, if you could make it huge, it'd be awesome. Lastly, to end, Dusty also told me a really beautiful story about a monument that she worked with other tribal community members to build at the orphanage where her grandmother and a lot of other tribal elders were taken when they were younger. And, and while in the grand scheme of these intergenerational problems faced by indigenous groups, it seems like a really small thing to do. When she talks about it, you understand that sometimes building monuments and just recognizing the struggles that people have been through can have extraordinary can have extraordinary healing properties for both the people who are both the people who have experienced that and for future generations and so since then since the orphanage is there where it's gone now one of my projects because i'm all about fixing and healing um we turned it into a, a community park wow. it's called a memorial park and I got a grant of 500000 from one of the Minnesota tribes and we turned it to Memorial Park and I had a huge monument built. Um, it's a, I said Memorial Park because it's a memory of all the children who went to Tecobusta, who are gone now and still here. Because um, hundreds never came home. They were putting them on trains and sending them out, they were farming them out, you know, and I think that needs to be acknowledged. So it's a memorial park for all of them. And what it is, it's an eagle. It's a huge eagle. His, his wings are out. And at the at his feet is a star quote, and it's wrapped around him. And in that star quote are children. And they're looking out. And what that monument is, I was, I get all emotional when I think about this. It's a promise to our children that we will never let that happen to you again. We will never let them take you and do those things to you. And um, some people understand it. Um, and I, I put a huge, there's a huge site, a circular sidewalk going around it for wheelchairs because I wanted a place of healing for our elders and, um, and the, the, the young elders <clears throat> to reflect and there's benches around it. And it's away, tucked away from the corner. 
So there was a lot of prayers that went into that whole park because of what used to be there. And um, the morning of the people who were going to come out and put the monument up, um, I went out there about 6 a.m. I took tobacco out there. And I was always, you know, I always wanted to do things the right way with a good heart. And I went out there and I was praying. I was like, it's, I, you know, I hope this is right. I hope I'm doing what I should be doing. This is the right location. If it's not, you know, if 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 it's the right location, let me know. This is crazy as hell, but so I put the tobacco out and stuff. And uh, a tree over about eighty yards, a tree, a perfectly good tree, falls. It just falls, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, am I gonna take that as a sign? I'm like, yes. You know? Because I didn't want, I, I wanted to do, be done right because I knew how much healing could come from it that's so needed here. So the park was all done and we had a huge grand opening of it called the Arts in the Park. We had mimes. Apparently there's a mime school down the road that I didn't know about. <laughs> they came and then we had a horse prey. I mean, we had the balloon man. We had all kinds of stuff going on. And... People came that had bad experiences there and they sat on those benches and they cried and they cried and but they were so happy. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Inquirer, and thank you to Roma Chitko for bringing us this week's story. Additionally, we have a special thank you for this episode to David Edmund for connecting Roma to her interviewee, and thank you to Dusty for sitting down and taking the time to explain her point of view for this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. And be sure to join us next week when we sit down with Sarah Rocca to discuss some of everything that's been going on during the coronavirus crisis. Mm -hmm.